Hello and welcome to the Leaders with Ambition podcast series, the podcast that delves deep into the careers of some of the most successful leaders working in professional services firms across the UK, US and internationally. We aim to discover the secrets behind their success, the challenges they have overcome and to find out what traits make a successful leader. Hello and welcome to the latest episode in the Leaders with Ambition podcast series. And today I am absolutely delighted to welcome my guest, Jess Gower. Jess is partner of Markets and Clients at BDO. And today is going to be such an interesting and inspirational story. Uh, Seeing Jess, who grew up in Canada, deciding that she was going to move to the UK, move to London, although she'd never set foot outside of her hometown before and got a one-way ticket to find a corporate role uh, to see how she then developed her career through some short-term and temporary assignments to really gain experience and how the people that she met along the way really helped shape her and helped with the negotiation, the sales and the marketing, everything that makes Jess the most amazing leader that she is today to how she found a home at GT initially. And she really did feel like it was a home within the professional services world. And her career went from strength to strength until she finally ended up as a partner at BDO. So there's going to be some really interesting comments along the way, not least the fact that there have been challenges around the work and home life balance, which I think everybody has. And Jess will share how she dealt with some of those challenges as well along the way. So without further ado, Jess, over to you to bring your career history to life for us. Hi, Nikki. Thank you very much for asking me to join you today. I would like to note that I'm a bit concerned about actually living up to that (laughs) description, particularly you were careful not to mention that the very first thing I did when I came to the UK was get lost in Heathrow Airport. So thank you for sparing. Well, that is a good story though, Jess. (laughs) Perhaps now, uh, more than 20 years later, but you asked me to start by describing how I grew up. So I am first generation Canadian. My dad was British, my mother was German, and they met essentially at university in Canada. My mum's family came over Uh, from Germany when she was quite young. And so she grew up, spent most of her formative years in Canada. My dad came over to do a TA role at McMaster's University. So as the story goes, my mum was a student, clocked my dad and decided that was love at first sight. Love it. It, It's a beautiful story. And I have a lot of romance in my soul and I blame both of my parents. And with that comes the knowledge that not all romances end well. So my folks split up when I was quite young and unusually for the 1970s, my brother and I were brought up by my dad, which had absolutely amazing stories. But those stories are tinged with an understanding that there is hard work and there are choices to be made. And for me, one of those choices growing up was that we didn't have a lot of cash uh, because of the circumstances we were in. And so I understood early on that if I wanted an education or there were things that were important to me, I was the only one that was going to be able to reach for them. And education was very important to my dad. He was a teacher for a period of time. And I understood that education gave you a way to open doors. So I was determined to go to university. And in order to do that, I worked three jobs. 
So North America has a different university approach. The UK has only adopted it recently, but at the time, Canada had quite low tuition fees compared to the States, but they were still somewhere around five grand a year. So on top of that, you had books and living expenses. So I worked at a bakery. I worked in a unionized kitchen in a convent. And I I love, I love that you were working with nuns. (laughs) Honestly, it's an amazing view into what women are capable of because it was actually a retirement home for nuns. So these were women at the end of their careers. And so they would have been at the height of their careers in the 40s, 50s or 60s, when it was incredibly unusual for a woman to be anything other than a wife or a mother or a teacher or possibly a nurse. So great respect for these women. And they always told me I'd look good in a wimple. (laughs) No, I I went down the education route. And so I did five years at uh, one of the best-known business universities on the east coast of Canada. And you did Um, economics and marketing, didn't you? You were doing a double course. Not one wasn't good enough for you, Jess. Yeah, I'd like to say it was because I was a high achiever, but it was more because the university noticed how strong my grades were from a statistics and a numbers point of view. And I should note that those were not the things that gave me joy throughout high school or or secondary, but my scores were good enough and the university wanted to open up some diversity. and, And so they actually asked as a female, would I join their economics degree? And I was actually there as a foundation undergraduate for commerce. So we worked out. Yes, I wonder how I did it all now, because there was an awful lot of reading. You know, if you've ever seen the economic textbooks, (laughs) they're not romance novels. (laughs) But what I ended up agreeing was a accelerated course. So each degree separately, the commerce degree is four years and the arts degree is three years. And I did them both in five. And when I graduated, I had no debt, which was a really big thing because as a family, we couldn't afford the debt. And a combination of hard work and, and, and a bit of academic achievement. I guess my scores were high enough that every year I received some form of a bursary. So I, it was a good thing because when I walked out, I didn't really have a job to go to. Yeah. And because I came from a background, you know, where my parents are European, essentially, that sense of history just fascinated me. You have to understand that I grew up in the east coast of Canada, where the world is about the natural surroundings. So the geography is amazing, but the amount of civilization history that remains is very short in terms of years, because everything that was built over there was built in wood. (laughs) So nothing stands. And we have a lovely tendency as Canadians to slap a blue plaque on any building that's lasted more than 100 years. And so imagine, you know, I came here and I walked down London Wall, which used to be a Roman wall. I love it. And also my country is very, very large. So it takes me the same amount of time to fly from London to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where I grew up, as it does to fly from Halifax, Nova Scotia to the West Coast, to British Columbia, where my mother now lives. Which is unbelievable, isn't it? You think that. about the, the size of your magnitude. Yeah. Yeah. And in half that time, I can go from here to any number of European countries yeah, just yeah. for a weekend. It's fantastic. I didn't. I didn't it was still a massive step for you. And, you know, particularly, I think when, you know, as you say, you'd worked so hard in your degree, not only in your degree, but also to make sure you had your three jobs. Yeah. Juggling. Yes. Well, I think all students 
face this. When you leave university, you have choices in front of you. Some of those are to explore more of what you want to do. Some of those are to look for a career that helps define you. Some of those are just looking for adventure. And as we all learn, as we get further and further into our career, really is the connections and the relationships you build that give you that leg up. And as much as Halifax is a city I'm incredibly proud of, it is a small one, particularly in comparison to some of the cosmopolitan cities that you get, like London. Yeah. And so if I was going to get a job that had a future, it wasn't necessarily going to be in Halifax. So that meant moving to a bigger city. And unfortunately, you know, the cities in my country didn't fascinate me anywhere near as much as they did in the UK. So I chose to come to London and I told myself it was big enough that I should be able to get a job at something and I should give myself six months. And I don't know about anybody else, but if I have an escape route, it's much easier to take. So I chose to come on a one-way ticket. I found bed and breakfast, essentially, in Russell Square, paid for three nights, and I arrived. And this is this is that unheroic moment when I couldn't get out of Heathrow. <laughs> I have to remember, I got on a flight at midnight. I landed, you know, at four o'clock in the morning, my time. And I was in an airport that was five times the size of mine. And that was just the single terminal I was in. So when I left, you know, my airport, international arrivals and domestic arrivals came in through the same door. When I hit Heathrow, I knew which bus I had to catch from Heathrow into London, but I couldn't for love nor money find signs. Yeah. So I just thought kept going around the same set of revolving doors and kept looking at the same signs that said bus. So I'm not your woman if you need direction. <laughs> Avoid. Yeah. 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 My whole family knows that. Yeah. yeah. They're like, don't let mummy have the map. So you managed to eventually get out the airport and make your way to Russell Square. Was it something, again, you know, you, you mentioned there that you wanted to come to the UK or to London specifically because you knew that you wanted to get a job and it would there was more chance in a, in a global city. So you're already very focused on your advancement and on your career from a young age because a lot of people coming out of university you know I know that I didn't know really what I wanted to do but you were very determined and focused still then. It's a good observation and I think if I'm being really open it comes down to the way I grew up. Security is incredibly important to me and I equated a good education with good job prospects and a career which in my head translates into security. Yeah, And so the opportunity to have more selection comes from being in a larger city because there are more organizations, there are bigger companies, there's more opportunities. But as well, I felt as though I had a number of options. So with a commerce degree in economics and a degree in marketing, I could make a choice once I saw the opportunities that were available. What was interesting to me is, you know, I came expecting to use my economics degree, become an analyst of some kind, work within a bank. And that's where my connections weren't as strong as potentially they are now. No bank would look at me for an interview unless I had an introduction from somebody they knew because I didn't have the job experience. While I had a good education, it was a Canadian education, which is not one that they recognize. And I didn't have anybody to vouch for me. So it was far easier to find a role from a marketing perspective um, and pursue that. And when you started to look for work, how hard was it to really break into marketing at the start? 
because you had some really interesting roles when you first came. I know they were temp roles and short term roles, but there were some really interesting jobs that you had as well. Um, so, I, you know, like like any good person starting on a career, I was a bit of a job toad. You looked at a role, you had the opportunity and it was offered to you, you took it. I mean, this was 25 years ago. And those roles would keep you interested because you would learn things, you would get better exposure, you would be earning a salary. Yeah. But within 18 months, particularly in the junior roles, and I'm sure many of you that remember that far back, if you're my age, you started junior, you picked up your experience, and then you were ready to move on sometimes more quickly than the organization you were with had space for you. Yeah. So then you for a diagonal, where in my case, it's it's always looking for what else you can learn or how you can better use the skills you've got. I find the more variety and the more challenge, the more fun a role is. And so once you know how to do something, you then look for the next challenge, whether that's wherever you are, whether that's the next role. And I see it now in my team. There's a real drive for promotion and development. And that comes from getting a role promote so that you become, you take on more responsibility and more opportunities, or you, you choose to move to another firm so that you get that recognition. And that's really important to all of us because it's how we identify who we are yeah. and how we add that value to the roles that we take on and what we are asked as people to give back to the jobs we're in. But I think one of the things that you've said to me in the past as well is very much around this, don't chase the job title, chase the responsibility, chase the role, chase making sure that you're doing the best possible job you can do and then everything else will come to you. And a lot of the time you do see now, don't you, people chasing titles for title's sake? Understand it. As humans, we all look for our place in a story and those stories have labels. And a job title gives you a really clear identity both about your importance and your hierarchy. And when you are just starting out, that is as important as the value of your salary. And the more that label sounds important, the more you feel it gives you validity. So yeah, it's easy to get caught up in it. And sometimes it absolutely is the right thing to do. But my experience has been looking for more than the job title, because commercially, if there isn't a business case for that particular role to be promoted, it's unlikely that you'll be pushed into those roles in a way that you will find valuable and yeah. rewarding. Well, I think that actually leads you onto your role at the Princess Trust, that um, you did such a good job that you did yourself out of a role. <laughs> it was in my job toad phase. I was really a generalist. So I had an opportunity in a number of different roles to better apply marketing techniques and theory and get some of that experience that gives you more confidence as you start to manage your own projects. So whether that is marketing communications or website management or branding or advertising, you know, writing content and copy. And I moved into an internal communications role at the Princess Trust because, okay, I'm Canadian, Princess Trust, royalty. Yeah. Okay, yes. Um, and brilliantly, this was part of the team that worked with their celebrity ambassadors. So I wasn't quite thirsty and the thought that I was going to meet British actors. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll sit here. Thank you very much. But one of the challenges for an organization of that size that does such a strong role, but relies both on volunteers, on a massive coverage across the UK and a number of different programs and initiatives that have corporate sponsors is keeping everybody on track. And so internal communications has real specialist skills, which I should note that I don't have to the same level as some of my colleagues. So I understand the theory, which I learned on the job. But one of the biggest things I could see was that for people to take the messages seriously, 
and believe in them and live in them. It had to come from a much more senior individual than an internal comms manager. So I made that argument to my boss who made that argument back to the board. And all we were really looking for was a champion on the board. And unfortunately, my timing really sucked because they were looking at restructuring and how they better improve their ways of working. And so I basically talked myself out of a job because they agreed with me. And not only that, they thought that a lot of what I was describing needed to sit within the board's responsibility. And it was absolutely the right call at the time, but it was deeply disappointing. (laughs) You did a good thing though. You've got to think you helped with the restructure, which is very positive. But it's amazing how personal those decisions feel, whether they're the result of a conversation that you started or not. Massively so. And you also spent some time working within a licensing organisation, didn't you? Which, again, really helped develop your negotiating skills and marketing and selling. It was a brilliant firm and it was built by two incredible individuals that worked really, really well together. And from a, a commercial point of view, licensing is taking a brand that is well known and extending it into a different product or service. And so as a licensing company, you work with the people that own the brand and then you go find manufacturers or creators that want to build a product that that name can cover. And then you have to go find the retailers that want to use that product and sell it. So I learned through that experience and with guidance how important it was to manage all your stakeholders and probably a first foray into what it might be like working with partners because to deal with the people who own the brand who were looking at the revenue but were very protective about making sure that the brand extension was relevant then to the retailers who needed to know six months in advance what type of products how they were going to buy who they were going to sell it to and then to the creators that had to pay for the right to use this it's an amazing number of things to juggle I do think it's such a good um, segue into a partnership, as you say, and uh, the skills that you learned there obviously helped. Uh, You subsequently found a job at Grant Thornton. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you really felt that this was home. You know, you loved the partnership environment. You loved the variety of the people and the role, didn't you? You just felt that it had all come together for you in your career. I do feel really lucky that every place I have worked has had outstanding people. And I think it It's really important to be comfortable in your skills and the value that you have as a person that helps you reinforce those connections. And so actually the the role at Grant Thornton was a recommendation from somebody that I had worked with in one of my job toad roles. And he was now embedded within the firm and he thought, well, here's a marketing role and I know somebody that might fit it. I never would have gotten an opportunity to interview otherwise because I had no professional services background at all. And those of us in professional services know that tends to be the first thing that's looked at because you need to gauge somebody's ability to survive in that environment. And I think that's interesting as well, isn't it, though? When you look back, and and I love your phrase, job title, I love that. But it also shows that whenever you're doing any role anywhere, give it your best, your most authentic self as well and work as hard as you can because you never know what these connections are going to lead to. And it led for you for an introduction into a firm that I know you you worked there for a number of years and and worked your way up and, and you were very happy there. Yeah, I was. I think very fondly of it. I'm still in touch with a number of of my old team. And professional services can be quite a tight-knit group. You actually do cross paths with people that you've worked with several roles before. But I do think being aware of the impact that you have in the role that you are in and focusing on those elements like taking on greater responsibility or understanding the world outside the marketing lens that we all have is really important. 
And it comes down to, you know, one of the marketing tenants is know your customer. And as a yeah. marketer of professional services, your very first customer is always your partner base. Yeah. I feel like I love them. Yeah. And you also mentioned to me, I think in the past that, you know, this whole thing about the value add piece and how important that is. And that goes back to your commerciality, doesn't it? That everything you're doing, particularly in a partnership, you're thinking, what value are we adding and how will this be seen by the partnership group? So as many of us do, you know, you go through your time and you look at how you develop and you get offered the opportunity for personality and profiling. And I know that I am a people pleaser. I probably comes from, you know, again, my background growing up with a, a single parent for a period of time and you feel that concern and upset and you want to make it better. And so I've kind of taken on the wanting to make it better, but also liking problem solving. And from a marketing perspective, there's a real balance to be had between the creative drive and the passion for delivering good design or clever strategy or good positioning alongside the commercial value you get from it. Yeah. Some of that commercial value is short term. So do we need to deliver X revenue against this product? Do we need to know what our pipeline is going to look like? But some of it comes down to the sense of sustainability. So do you have a sense of in three years time what your business is going to look like? What's marketing's role in creating the steps to build out that business? The more you're able to have those conversations with your stakeholders, the more value you give to the function that you sit in. Yeah, And as much as I know, there's a huge amount of complexity in marketing. It's a really fast changing industry. It's very easy to assume that you know what it is because it's not, it's not brain surgery. Um, I have an analogy that says marketing is very much like fishing. So even if you've never done it, you know what it looks like because you can see the person over there standing in a body of water trying to catch fish. If you have some skill at it, you know that there are different tools to catch different types of fish. And if you're serious about it, you hire a guide to tell you where to fish. So when you are in a marketing function, how are you viewed? Is it everybody stands over there and says, yeah, we know that they're fishing. Is it you get a chance to define some of the tools or are you being paid to guide? And taking on that role, are you the guide? You know, Are you the tool bearer? Or are you just the guy in the bank? I think that is a challenge for all of us in professional services because it is very easy to get put in a box. We all work with partners and really big business leaders who are senior and articulate and incredibly clever. They're educated. They work in these very complex technical requirements every day. They deal with a mass of individuals that have client requirements and they, they service that every single day. So they want somebody that makes their life easier. And the way that translates is the pigeonhole that says marketing will color in my paper, make this look good or do what I tell them to. And I can see you smiling. And I do have partners in the past that have referred to my team as the coloring in department. I can um, imagine your response to that, Jess. <laughs> yes, he doesn't have the markers we'll use, but thank you very much. <laughs> I know. And it's one of those things that you can absolutely understand why they say that. Hmm. And yet it's frustrating because when you're surrounded by the team that I am, or when you have the experience that many of you will have, you know that it is not that simple and the value is really hard to quantify. And the sooner you're able to pick out the language that your stakeholders use and link the commercial balance between the things you really desperately want to see your firm do and the things that you're being asked to do, the sooner you will be brought to the table to join in those conversations about the decisions that are being taken now and in the future. 
And I feel really strongly about that. We don't get that seat offered naturally. Yeah. And I think you said to me in the past about really finding your opinion and finding your voice and then finding the way to get it heard, because that's so important, isn't it? And not just being somebody that is a facilitator, but, you know, again, a value piece and how you yeah, can do it in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so I follow Marketing Week on LinkedIn feed. Uh, there is a contributor called Mark Ritson. There's been a couple of articles recently by Marketing Week that raises research about CMO's roles on the board or marketing's viewpoint about what the next couple of years are going to look like or the challenge that they have in getting marketing brand or strategy on the board's agenda. And there was a, a recent quote, and I'm trying to remember the statistics, but it's something like 40% of marketers are getting frustrated because they continue to reinforce how important brand and strategy is to the board, but they're not being listened to. My response is, if you are repeating the same things time and time again, and you're not being heard, change your approach. I say that, and it sounds absolutely bloody wonderful, but I've had to apply it to myself before as well, because I can get stuck in thinking, this is absolutely the right thing to do. Why does nobody understand me? Oh, it's my job to help them understand me. It's not my job to tell them how the world is and expect them to know that or follow the same thought process. Which is, you know, like you say, it just sounds really sensible advice as well to follow through on, doesn't it? And I think it was when you were at Grant Thornton when you um, started your family as well, wasn't it? And so you had... Oh, well, that's when I met my husband. That was when you met your husband at Grant Thornton. (laughs) Until I was working for an American turnaround firm. Yeah. Um, which from a professional services point of view was brilliant because they didn't have the audit conflict that we're now facing. Massively entrepreneurial. I managed European marketing in conjunction with the New York head offices. So I started my family when I was working for an American firm. Yeah, both my kids were born while I was there. And how did you cope with that at the start then? Because I know that, you know, you're very much focused on your career and you wanted to, as we know, you go back to some of your core values around the security and that's something you need to create for your family environment as well. But how did you cope with having young children, a big job, um, you know, for a, a huge firm and make it all work? It was probably a fair amount of sheer panic at the beginning. <laughs> Um, anybody who's carrying around an eight-month tummy is like oh boy what's going on yeah exactly this is not what I signed up for (laughs) I would like to make it sound as though it was very deliberate and it really wasn't it was recognizing that we had choices to make and then trying to evaluate those choices and as any working parent knows sometimes those choices are a compromise and sometimes they actually feel incredibly natural but you tend to give up something regardless of what your decision is. And so you have to make it work. My husband and I made the decision that because we lived outside of London, we wanted to have one of us stay at home and be a primary caregiver to the the child. At the time, we didn't know what the gender was going to be. I think we were very lucky in the timing because at that point in time, there were changes in EU regulations that allowed shared parental leave. So we split my 12 months and decided that we would each feel what it was like to be a worker while there was an infant at home or to be the primary caregiver with the infant at home. Because there's real challenges in both roles, isn't there? You know, you're dealing with a child that can't tell you what they want and it's a massive responsibility or you're dealing with a bunch of very driven professionals and always too many demands and not enough time. And at at the end of that 
shared parental leave, we agreed that actually my husband was happy to stay at home and I was happy to go back to work. Thinking about it now, if I'd known that we weren't necessarily going to revisit that conversation, I might have asked for like a break pause, but we, it works, but works very, very well for us on the whole. And what is you know really brilliant is that there is never those panicked phone calls in the middle of the day that tries to work out whose meeting is more important, or can you juggle a really important call and have a child that you have to take care of at the same time. And I, you know, I, I think it's really natural for a parent or somebody who's responsible for care for another individual. It's, it's really hard to feel like you're doing right, either by your job, what you are paid for, or by your role as a caregiver and the responsibilities you have. It, it's a horrible split between what you want to do, what you should do, and sometimes what you enjoy doing. Yeah, I think it's that, that it's a huge challenge. I know it's something you and I've spoken about as well, isn't it? That, you know, there are going to be times where you do drop balls on either side and that's something you have to get get come to peace with pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah, I've heard it described that basically if you think that I am nailing it in one aspect of my life, it means that what you're not seeing is I'm dropping it somewhere else. Yeah. You know, so if you think I'm nailing it by sitting here with you, what you can't hear is the fact that my husband's just dragged children (laughs) and tennis practice and somebody's skinned a knee and somebody else has not done their homework. Yeah, there's always a lot of juggling going on, isn't there? Behind the facade of calmness. Yes, it's it's the swan, right? Like that. Mm. You decided to join BDO, which I know was um, obviously one of the decision that you made was very much around the firm, the people that you met there, and you thought these are really good people. I want to be part of this uh, firm, and you've yeah. gone from strength to strength there, haven't you? What is it that makes it so special at BDO? Well, it's one of those annoying cliches that is one hundred percent true, and it's absolutely the people. Yeah. You know, everybody, so their view process was quite rigorous. So I met a large proportion of their leadership team and senior partners that were running parts of the business. You know, we had really good conversations, but it's the quality of the firm that has worked really hard to maintain a balance between allowing leaders to do what is perceived as the right thing yeah. and providing a structure to do the right thing within. Their growth has been absolutely amazing. In the last seven years, it's it's been you know one hell of a story. They sit in a really unique position from who they serve, the qualities that they bring, and the focus on a core purpose to support their people. But you know, I think it comes back down to the connections that you make, how you use them, and then what you see as your responsibility to the organization and the people you work with. And I know that you, you know that your team is really important to you isn't it? And it's about, you know, how you can give them opportunities and how you can help with the coaching and mentoring. And that's something that you invest a lot of your personal time in. I do. I'm learning all the time. So my team would laugh because I really like to be right. I know very few people that enjoy being wrong, but I I find it. (laughs) So I need that moment to just accept that I might not be right about something and move on. My team is a large team. There's over hundred. They're spread across the UK. Uh, They have an incredible amount of skills. And I remember what it was like to feel part of a function that was undervalued or to feel unsure about how serious the firm was, about the opportunities within that function and where else they might go. And it was hard not to be invested in the brilliant people that are surrounding you or that you see will pick up one of their other teammates and help them move things forward. And it's that old story that you surround yourself by people that are better than you. 
and then give them space. I'm constantly worried, you know, somebody's going to club me in the middle of the night and take my job, but that's my job is to get them ready for that. And I'm challenged every day by people that expect that from me as their leader. And I'm supported every day by people that want to help me develop that so that the entire team has an opportunity. So I do take it seriously. And, you know, some uh, imposter syndrome, I suppose, you don't always know if you're doing it right or if you're doing it enough. Uh, So you're constantly looking for what else you can do because there's always room for improvement whether it is in you or the way you lead or what you're asking of your people or the opportunities you're giving them. And you have a term with your team, special snowflakes, which I think is fair. <laughs> yeah, I like to believe that it is a it is a description that's instantly recognisable to anybody who's <laughs> in the partnership is there will be people either within your team or the people that you work with that are a little bit special because their situation is different from everybody else's. Either the clients that they work with are incredibly different from everybody else's. So they just need this one thing. You have people on your own team that are a bit of a special snowflake because the technical knowledge they have is so specific and they're very protective of it because it's taken them years to earn it. And it's understanding when you can flex and when you can't. But we're all different and we all need to feel like we're important. Yeah, I love that term. And you were made partner at the end of last year. I mean, how did that feel? Because you set out with a a quest to come to London and find a a corporate job, uh, but you didn't necessarily think I'm going to be partner in a professional services firm. No. How how did that happen? How does it feel? Uh, well, it, it happened because, again, the, the people at BDO supported me, my line manager, senior partners. There are people in the firm that have a real responsibility and a clear objective to supporting individuals and nurturing talent, I guess, but also a bloody hard work. Yeah, I'm not the first. You know, there are a number of my colleagues that really paved the way who are not client facing but really built a business case and influenced decisions so that as a firm, that confidence in accepting individuals into the partnership who might not have a direct line that says, this is exactly how much revenue I've brought in, but it is still undeniable that the support and value they bring into the business is worthwhile recognizing and rewarding. So BDO has started to build out a process that formally recognizes a pathway to partner for client and non-client facing individuals and so I was one of the earlier joiners if you like on that pathway it's a trailblazer I love it Jess I go back to being worried that I'm not going to stand up to those descriptions but um, (laughs) somewhere in the middle somewhere in the middle but it feels a little bit daunting because your responsibilities as a director in a very large organization for a large team are heavy enough But as a partner, understanding the balance between when you're directing, but when you're leading, you know, when you are standing in front of everybody and saying, this is the direction we're going, you know, it's not always live by the sword, die by the sword, but you have to be incredibly confident in your opinions and the reasons why. So it does give me a different viewpoint of some of my special snowflakes and the challenges they face. And it makes me want to help them more. But it's as you say as well, you know, you're surrounding yourself by really good people and you're trying to help their 
development as well so they can achieve so if you're surrounded by all these amazing people then yeah you can do is really achieve which is good so what would you class has been your highlights then throughout your career because there seems to be to me quite quite a lot but to you you're probably just doing your job (laughs) so I think you've asked me this before and I do I struggle with the highlights because I don't spend a lot of time basking in in any sort of success I spend my time looking at the things that could go better so I can certainly tell you the things I've learned from I think you may laugh at these but you know a lot of them go back to attention to detail and making sure that you are giving yourself time to make the right decisions yeah there are things as silly as in the days before mobile numbers not checking the landline number on an advertisement and realizing that you put some poor woman's home landline <laughs> In a magazine advertisement, that was my bad, didn't I go down well? Um, my personal favourite was letting a pitch go out to a public sector organisation and relying on spell check and not realising that public is another word without the L. Oh Hilarious. Yeah. So I, I am an absolute eagle now when it comes to just review the content. Who else has reviewed the content? Double check it. I think highlights are, are finding the people you connect with. Mm-hmm and realizing where your excitement comes from and then working with your stakeholders so your role really incorporates that. There is no point having a job where 75% of it bores you. Yeah, well, you you can't do that every day of your life, can you? That would definition of insanity. Do you feel still that networking is important then, Jess, for you? Because as you mentioned, when you first arrived in the UK, you didn't have the network to get you into the financial services. That happened and worked for the best because look at you now. But you did get the introduction earlier on into Grant Thornton. And I know networking is something that you you do take seriously as well. So I'm actually a bit of an introvert. So I find networking with people I don't know really quite difficult. And so I've had to be quite practical about looking at what you do, why you do it, and when you do it. So from a networking point of view, determining what I'm trying to achieve and then making sure that I'm spending my time identifying where I should be focusing. So I'm actually a board advisor for a small technology legal firm, which has given me exposure to a whole host of things. The chair is a chair of a number of small companies, so I learn from him every day. I learn from the CEO and the challenges that he's got. I have just been asked if I would be a governor at a local school, so that gives me better exposure to decisions that are taken. And I think most of my networking, to be honest, is done within my own firm. There are over 400 partners in understanding their needs and their challenges And then their ambition for the firm that we are growing is really, really important. And then you take those pieces and you look at what network you have or where you might need to expand it. And again, you know, I'm surrounded by partners and by individuals in my own team that do this as easy as they breathe. And I find it absolutely amazing. And yet those continuous touch points are really, really important. It's why I value staying in touch with all team members, seeing where they go and they end up can then help your networking. So in the next two or three weeks, I've got connections with people I used to work with that are actually at, you know, a really large e-commerce retail site that are at a massive energy organization that have split off and built out their own AI. So those are all things that I can learn more about or that I might be able to build business for BDO. Mm -hmm. They're not just random. Yeah. 
good solid connections I think it's interesting as you say that you know you find it difficult to think about your highlights you're looking more at your learns there as well and I think so many highlights I know the rebrand at BDO that you did and you know you had I think it was something like 95% partner approval on it I mean I think that's absolutely amazing you're right I think that is one that I will cherish for a long time and it's because I achieved a really good result, but also it was a hell of a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) You know, anybody that's worked in a rebrand that has more than one voice as a final veto knows how tricky it is because brands are intangible things that are a group of words and language and stories and visuals. And people respond either to images or they respond to language and they have very personal interpretations for each. So to come up with, a rebrand and a strap line and a visual approach where 95% of the firm supported it was really amazing. But what was more amazing is that once we had that framework in place, the firm just picked up the story and the purpose behind it and made it their own. I mean, it would never have been as successful if they hadn't picked it up and carried it that much further. It's amazing. So congratulations. Highlights. I'll tell you highlights. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. I love data. I love having the information that backs up the business case you're making or the approaches you're considering and how you take that information back and share it with your business so that they follow your line of reasoning and therefore support your recommendations. Yeah. So as an example, it is a little bit old now, but there is industry research for professional services called the perception gap. What that talks about is there is a difference between the perception that professional services firms have of themselves and the way those messages land with their audience. The gap is bigger if you are a legal firm or a banker, and it's a lot smaller if you're a doctor. And accountancy firms are somewhere in the middle, about 25%. So taking that story and that data and sharing it with our partnership and being clear about what the brand refresh strategy was going to achieve, which was closing that perception gap, that's a big thing for me. That's interesting. But it's like you say, it's about finding the data, the information that will help you sell your story to, to the partnership group, isn't it? And and that's what uh, you know professional services partners want. They want solid information to be able to work off. I have found a real connection with my partner base in providing external data because, you know, as, as accountants, they look for that data that helps reinforce the decisions they're making. That data helps shape the story of what you're trying to achieve and the likely outcome. And it is far more successful than purely using technical marketing information. We're immersed in it, so we understand it and it makes sense. But it's, you know, the worst kind of annoying buzzwords. (laughs) Which you can get. It makes perfect sense. And, And what about challenges then? What would you say have been your biggest challenges to date? Oh, well, (laughs) as a parent of two and a full-time worker, getting the balance right between work and life, you know, am I making the right decisions? Am I spending my time wisely? Am I giving myself enough time to rebuild my own energy so I can support my team or my partners or my husband or my kids? I'm convinced there's a secret formula. I just haven't found it. (laughs) If you find it, please share it with me. I'd love it. (laughs) Yeah. Again, probably a lot of that is back to seeing the example my dad led and knowing that for him, family came first. And I 
would like to believe that one of my priorities as a leader of my team is giving them an environment where they know family comes first. So whatever happens unexpectedly in their home lives, they have the support they need to deal with it. And I've been so pleased and I'll say proud to see some of my own senior team members extending the same approach and feeling very comfortable that they don't need to sign it off by me. They know I'll back them for giving their team members that support. And then equally, I want my kids to know that they're more important than any job. Yeah, I'm not sure my kids agree with that because my son, who is 11, came home in the summer and asked me how much I earned (laughs) and decided that I could earn more if I stayed in this room for longer hours and he would make sure I got fed. I love it. Yeah. What a great idea. And I suppose, as those words of wisdom, I said, I don't like being wrong. I really don't like being wrong. But when I make mistakes, I want to learn from them. Sometimes mistakes are more valuable than not making them. And that then challenges me to be bold in ways that I might not naturally be. Because as I said earlier, you know, security is a big thing for me, which means I'm very risk averse. Yeah. And there are moments in careers and in the decisions you take where being quiet is not as helpful as being bold. But I think over the years, you'll have naturally developed techniques or ways to be more bold as well in, in a safer environment. Because, you you know, with your if you are risk averse, it has to be in a safe environment, doesn't it? I think yeah. Yourself, yeah. And again, this is where I know my team particularly will do their utmost to support each other and hopefully me. <laughs> and the same is very much true of everybody I've met at BDO. They work very hard to support each other, even if you have made a dumbass mistake, which so far I have not made so many that I am embarrassed. <laughs> well, that's as you say, you know, your words of wisdom, make mistakes as well, learn from them. Yeah. Uh, don't make too big mistakes uh, and and make sure that, you know, you, you're true to yourself. I think one of the, the really big mm-hmm. things about bringing your authentic self to work and actually then people will want to connect with you, want to work with you. People want to push themselves out of their comfort zone. So there's so much that comes out of it. It's such a positive, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. And I think one of the things I've established is a, I won't say a track record, but a clear approach about constantly looking for the small changes that bring value. So particularly in professional services, I find it is much easier to affect change when you're not talking about the big, scary, massive changes. So when you're looking for those little tiny things that when they add up, they're absolutely amazing but they're easy to make from the first day because they're small. The same is true of work-life balance. Make the small changes rather than the, I'm not going to have chocolate ever again. That's not workable. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess as you grow in responsibility, understanding what your role is, are you there to serve or are you there to lead? And if you are there to lead, being bold serves you well because being bold doesn't mean challenging the people around you. It means sharing a different way of working or a different way of looking at opportunities to get the most back. That's a very good point. Great and great words of wisdom there to end our podcast on today. Jess, thank you so much for sharing everything today. It's been really interesting. And be bold as a leader, I think, is is something that a lot of people need to take away with them. So thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Nikki.